It's a wonderful thing when the children of God can be together and honor him and show our appreciation for his son, Jesus Christ, remember what Jesus has done for us. So thank you for being here today. Again, we have visitors. We're so thankful that you can join us to honor the God of heaven and do the things that we're privileged to do as human beings to approach him and uh, thank him and fellowship with him and with one another. So thank you for being here. We just sang a song, Almost Persuaded, and it goes right along with the lesson, uh, maybe more than Lee realizes, but um, the question of our lesson this morning is, am I persuaded? The word persuade, or to be persuaded, in our Bibles is translated from a word, patho, which means to convince And if you read Strong's dictionary definition of this, to convince by argument whether true or false. You can be persuaded of something that isn't true. Because the arguments and the claims and the so-called facts, or fake news if you will, that you believe wasn't true, but you believe it to be true and so you're persuaded that it is true and you're convinced that it is true. We can be persuaded to actual truth in that same process if what's presented to us if the arguments that are presented to us and the claims are true I find it fascinating that we allow ourselves as human beings to be persuaded to do or not do to believe or not believe a great many things by arguments that are either true or false wise or foolish selfish or selfless But however the process occurs, we're persuaded nonetheless. And we're sure that this is the way it is. Because we've been persuaded. Jane Austen wrote a novel entitled Persuasion. I'm not the biggest Jane Austen fan in the world, I'll just tell you. But she wrote some good stories, and they're interesting, and... The novel Persuasion is a lot like her other novels. You have this young lady and this young man that are uh, trying to fall in love and they're having difficulties doing that usually is the story, you know. They have their ups and their downs and their all-arounds and usually there's a happy ending to it all. In, in Persuasion, it's kind of interesting because it illustrates just this point that I'm making. The uh, lead characters are both persuaded of a number of things Because they're listening to false claims and bad advice. And so they both make horrible choices. (laughs) And then later on they get some better advice, oddly, from the same people that gave them the bad advice. And are persuaded to make some good choices. And that's how it is, isn't it? It's how life is. It all depends on who persuades us, what they're persuading us with in terms of arguments and claims, evidence, and what they're persuading us to. The Apostle Paul was a persuaded individual. Persuaded, first of all, that Christianity was a horrible thing and that Christians needed to be persecuted even to death, and yet persuaded later that Christianity was the only true way to God. And that only through Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, could anybody have hope of eternal life. And it is this persuasion I want to focus on with you for a moment. 
Paul's encounter with the resurrected Christ persuaded him. He writes in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, For this reason I suffer these things. In other words, Paul was going, willing to go through a lot, and he did go through a lot of difficulty, trial and tribulation, hardship in his life, because he was persuaded. He says, I'm willing to suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I believed and am persuaded. The ESV there says, convinced that he is able to keep what I have committed to him against that day. Paul had given his entire life, indeed his, his soul, to, to the keeping of Jesus Christ. But he says, I don't mind suffering to do that. I don't mind the difficulties that came along with it because I am persuaded. Do we understand what persuasion does for us? And maybe sometimes does to us. If we're really persuaded about something and we have any sort of character to us at all, we're going to stand on that thing. We're going to insist on that thing. If we have any conviction about it at all, we, we are going to sacrifice ourselves for that thing. If this is what we're truly persuaded of. I believe it was Paul's encounter with the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus that was the turning point. That persuaded him from one thing to another, if you will. That change of mind we call repentance. That's what a change of mind is, it's repentance. But that change occurred when Paul encountered Christ. The story of that is told repeatedly in the book of Acts. And the last time it's told is found in Acts 26. These events have already occurred. Paul is retelling them to King Agrippa. And I'd like you to go in your Bibles to Acts 26. And notice in verse 12, Paul is telling Agrippa about being a persecutor of the church, thinking and being persuaded that's what he ought to be doing. And he tells him then in Acts 26 and verse 12, While I was thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You know, Jesus had all along, through his providence and through the preaching of the gospel, been trying to uh, sort of poke Paul in the right direction. <laughs> a goad is, is a prod, if you will. It's used on animals to get them to go in the right direction. But Paul was going headlong in the wrong direction because he wasn't persuaded by the goad. And Jesus says, buddy, it's a, it's a real hard thing that you're doing to reject this urging to turn and go in the right direction. Paul says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I just want to tell you that you can scarcely imagine the flood of emotion, the draining of blood from his face, the uh, moment in time that is described here where Saul of Tarsus 
realizes he had been persuaded wrongly. There may be people in this audience this morning who are persuaded wrongly. It is a hard thing to recognize that. It is a hard thing to change once you've been persuaded of something. Paul did. And he did from all indications right then and there. For in the next sentence, Jesus says to him, Rise and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. Jesus knows now from this point on, Paul is his man. Because in this moment of time, he was persuaded of something different. That Christ indeed had died, he knew that. But he did not know that he had raised from the dead. And now he's persuaded. So it is, consequently, that Paul persuades others. In fact, if you go on in this same context, if you look down in verse 19, as Paul is still talking to Agrippa, he says to him, Therefore, King Agrippa, I I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, that was the place he was going to persecute Christians, Now he's declaring to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and through all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent. They should change their minds. They should repent. Turn to God and do works fitting of repentance. There's Paul's story of persuasion. And because he was persuaded, what does he do? He begins to persuade others. Here's our problem, folks, with evangelism, with personal evangelism. You know, we have classes about evangelism, we have tools that help us evangelize, we have Bible correspondence courses, we have home Bible studies, that we have methods of going out in the community and sharing the gospel. But at the core of the problem, why we're not any better at it, and I'm not saying we're not, but we're not as good as we could be, why we're not any better at it has to do with persuasion. Paul was persuaded. I mean, down to his toes, he was persuaded. And first thing he does there, I, I got I to tell other people. Jesus also told him to tell other people. So he is all of a sudden, all the time, everywhere he goes, persuading. Christianity is not something someone enters into because someone beat him over the head with a stick. Christianity is something a person chooses Because they've been persuaded. And so Paul goes about persuading. In Corinth, in 18 and verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Notice the word persuaded. In Ephesians chapter, in Ephesians rather, in Acts chapter 19 and verse 8, when Paul was in that town, he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading. The gospel is something that persuades people and it does so by reasoning. See, here's why we need to be able to sit down with people and talk to them and open a Bible between us. Because you're not going to persuade anybody if you can't reason with them. 
if you can't talk it through. Answer questions. Show them where the Bible says things. That's how you persuade somebody with a good and honest heart. And so Paul is reasoning and persuading concerning the kingdoms of God. And he is highly motivated to do that. Again, because he's fully persuaded, but also because he knows what's at stake. He writes to the Corinthians about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. He says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You and I are all, all, all of us going to the judgment day one day. And we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And every last one of us is going to answer for every last thing we've done, whether good or bad. We're all going before the judgment seat of Christ. And it is, it is a fearful thing, as the Hebrew writer says, to fall into the hands of the, un, uh, of the living God, particularly if you're unprepared. So Paul says in the next verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord... We persuade men. I am certain that Paul was certain that Jesus Christ was his Savior and that what Jesus Christ saved him from was an eternity in hell. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, knowing that he would not want anybody else to experience the eternity of hell, he says, Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. There's his motivation. And so he gave his life to that, as we know. And without looking at every place he went, everything he said, everything he did, those of us familiar with the life of the Apostle Paul, it's really an amazing life. Of one who's given himself entirely to serving God, and especially to this effort to persuade men. What were the results of Paul's work? Well, some were persuaded. Some were almost persuaded. And some weren't weren't persuaded at all. Look at a couple of examples of this with me. Go over in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. And we'll be with Paul in Antioch of Pisidia. It's one of the places that Paul and Barnabas visited together, established a church there. Paul's argument to the people in Antioch of Pisidia about Jesus Christ, as he's trying to persuade them, is Christ, sure enough, as was prophesied, died, but Christ rose from the dead. And it's that resurrection from the dead that is the persuasive point. Anybody can die. Anybody can die and claim that This death is a sacrifice for everybody. But not anybody can rise from the dead to prove that what they said was true. So the resurrection from the dead is the convincing point. In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul demonstrates this to be the case, even in this text. We'll pick up in Acts chapter 13 now. Uh, Paul is talking to people in Pisidia and Antioch. And he starts talking about how after, in Israelite history, after King Saul, God raised up David as king. This is chapter 13, verse 22. 
To me also gave testimony, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus, after John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all of the people of Israel. John was, as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, whose sandals, uh, whose, who, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, now Paul's saying, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, or even the voice of the prophets, which they read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And, through, and though they found no cause of death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. And when they'd fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So what, what, what Paul has done to this point is he's explained that Jesus is this son from the line of Jesse and David that God promised who would come to be the Savior. And he said, he's testified, he's claimed that this Jesus was killed by the rulers in Jerusalem. And then he says, here's the punchline, but God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption. He's spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. I, I know you're familiar with this sermon of Paul's here, and it's, it's very much like other sermons that he preaches and that Peter preaches as they evangelize in the book of Acts. Christ died, but he rose from the dead according to the promise of God. And to those who, especially as Paul's reasoning in the synagogue, to those who knew something of the Old Testament scriptures and knew that's what the prophets had said and realizing now that this has happened and Paul's a witness to it and you got other witnesses to it and, and there's some meat to this. There's a reason to believe it. There's a whole lot better reason to believe this than 99.9% .9 of the things that you read on the internet that you believe. Okay, so that Paul's given really great evidence to believe this. It's persuasive, especially to these people. And in fact, some were persuaded. Later on in this text, in chapter 13 and verse 40, he says, Beware lest what has been spoken to the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish 
For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. So the prophets had also said, there'll be people who, this thing is so amazing that we can't believe it. It's unbelievable that one would rise from the dead. The text says in verse 42, So then the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. And when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas. So you've got Jews and proselytes following Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas say to them, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. What does that say? That says that they had been persuaded. Paul was successful at persuading them. But he wasn't successful at persuading everybody. Because as the prophets had said, there would be those who wouldn't believe it, who wouldn't believe it at all. And as Abraham had told the rich man, as he speaking, you remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man's in torment, and he's speaking to Abraham across this great gulf in, in Luke chapter 16, and the rich man wants somebody to go back and tell his brothers, you know, no, don't come here, straighten up, do right. And Abraham tells him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. That's, that's reality. There, there are some people who won't be persuaded no matter what. You say, well, if somebody came up from the dead, that, that, that'd prove it. Not to some people. Not to some people. That's as persuasive an argument as you can make. This person's risen from the dead, and they're saying this and this is so, and they're claiming to be able to forgive sins and... Everything, actually, if you think about it, and here's kind of the point of that, if somebody rises from the dead and never dies again, anything they say is, is what you want to believe. That's how strong that evidence and persuasion is. But there are some who aren't persuaded by that evidence. Some were not persuaded. And so it is, as you read on, in Acts 14 and verse 19, Paul and Barnabas continue their journey, and they come to Lystra, and those who rejected the gospel and its messengers in Antioch come to Lystra, and it says in Acts 14 and verse 19, Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, having persuaded the multitudes... So here's what, here's what happens. Having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. So those who are not persuaded persuaded others to be not persuaded, right? Friends and brethren, we are in a battle for the minds and hearts of people. And there are a lot of people in this world who are trying to persuade you, your children, and everybody else, trying to persuade them not to be persuaded by the gospel. The world is full of them. Who at every turn 
are telling us, oh, you can't believe that Bible. That story of the resurrection is a myth. The Bible's full of mistakes. You can't believe that stuff. Those are just the words of men. Don't you want to be happy? You can live this kind of lifestyle. You can do this, this, or that. And indulge yourself in your pleasures and your want-tos. And that's also very persuasive. But just don't believe, don't believe the gospel. This battle of persuasion, of two completely polar opposite concepts of spirituality and reality. It's what it all boils down to. We are in a battle for the hearts and minds of people. Paul was in this battle his whole life, from the time at least, I should say, that he was persuaded of the gospel. The same thing that happened to him in Antioch and elsewhere happened in Thessalonica. He goes there in Acts 17 and verse 2. Paul, as was his custom, went into them on the, on the Sabbath day and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. There's his argument. Christ had to suffer, he had to die, and he had to rise from the dead. That's what the Old Testament prophets had said. That's what Paul was preaching and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And verse 4, guess what? Some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews were not persuaded. Becoming envious, took some evil men from the marketplace, gathered a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. You have that, the exact, you know, it's, it's over and over. Paul goes in, tries to persuade. Some people are persuaded. Some people are not. And they persuade others not to be persuaded. That runs through over and over again. Here's how somebody acts, though, when they're persuaded. And here's what somebody knows when they're persuaded. They're persuaded of the power of God's great love. They understand its power. God's love was demonstrated. It was demonstrated at the cross. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, this same apostle Paul writes, When we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps a good, for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross is the demonstration of the love of God. But as we've already said, if you missed it, let me repeat it. As we've already said, the cross by itself doesn't prove anything. Without the resurrection, the cross is just an event in history. It is the resurrection that proves the power of the cross. Because the resurrection proves that it was the Son of God who died there. This is the exact point Paul makes elsewhere, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 14. He says, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. 
the cross doesn't mean anything. The death didn't signify anything if there's no resurrection of Christ from the dead. It's all empty. It's all meaningless. So the resurrection and the crucifixion go hand in hand. And both of them demonstrate together the love of God. John 3.16, God so loved the world, God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son. John 15 and verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus did. Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Paul is persuaded that God's love is so great that nothing can separate us from it. He's persuaded that by the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Please go in your Bibles with me now to Romans chapter 8. And in verse 38, Paul begins this way. This is the second time he says this. We noticed it uh, early on as he writes to Timothy and now, now in writing to the Romans. He says, I am persuaded. I am convinced. I know this to be true because of the claims, the arguments, and the facts that I have accepted. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Paul knew how powerful the love of God was and is because he saw it at the cross and it was confirmed at the resurrection. Paul knew the power of God's love. He was fully persuaded. He is persuaded so that God's love is so powerful and so great that there is no power, there is no dimension of time or space or any created thing that can separate us from God's love. I want you to think about the time and space thing. Nothing that has happened or will happen. At no time and no place will there be anything that can separate you from the love of God. That's its power to hold you and to keep you and to fill your life. We wonder sometimes, well, you don't know how bad I've been. Well, you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know how bad you've been, but you don't know how bad I've been either, so we're fair, we're even. Doesn't matter. None of that. Nothing that can happen in the future. No person, event can separate you from the love of God. That's how powerful it is. But, let's backtrack a little bit. What? You've got to be persuaded. The key to all of this is being persuaded. If you're not persuaded, anything can separate you from the love of God. This is all based on Paul says, I am persuaded. It's all based on faith. It's based on conviction. 
So here's a silly question for an auditorium full of believers. Does, does God love us? Does God love us? Are you persuaded? Are you persuaded by the fact that he gave his son who died on the cross and rose from the dead? I hope you are. I hope you are. The Bible talks a lot about what God has done for us. From Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the willing sacrificial lamb who died for us in agony. The Bible speaks about his prayer in the garden, sweating as great drops of blood, his agonizing death on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We get all of that. But do we? And are we persuaded by it? In Ephesians chapter 3, if you go there with me, Paul is praying a prayer for these Ephesians. The same ones I call to your mind that he persuaded. He says to them, Acts 3, uh, Ephesians 3 and verse 18, in praying that they may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. If you know God's love, if you can comprehend all of it, you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Full persuasion results in full fulfillment. People all over the world in every moment are seeking fulfillment, are seeking meaning in their lives, are seeking a purpose. And all of the fulfillment, when God fills your life with your eternal purpose, is a consequence of being persuaded about the love of God. Back to King Agrippa. Paul was surely persuaded. Agrippa wasn't. You say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, preacher. He was almost. Right. Acts 26 and verse 28. As Paul is telling his story to the king, his story of persuasion, his obligation to persuade others. Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. I I wish everybody was persuaded like me, Paul said. I wish everybody was. I wish we all were too. The contrast between Paul and Agrippa could not be plainer. Agrippa was almost persuaded. In the year 1871, uh, Philip Bliss heard a sermon on King Agrippa's response to Paul's efforts to convert him, to persuade him. And uh, 
Philip Bliss was especially struck by that phrase. And so he wrote the song we sang before we started this lesson, Almost Persuaded. But the preacher who preached that sermon that was sort of the inspiration for the song that we sang said this at the end of his sermon. He who is almost persuaded is almost saved. But to be almost saved is to be entirely lost. To be fully persuaded is to be convinced that you are held in the embrace of God's everlasting love and that you intend to stay there, come what may. So this morning, are you persuaded? You might be saying, well, Steve, you're talking to a room of people. We, we've, most all of us confess Christ. And we believe he's the son of God. That's not really what I'm asking. I'm asking if you're persuaded. If you believe that all the way down to your toes. If you are fully persuaded and held by God's love. And if you're not, re-examine the evidence. Look at it again. Let it overwhelm you that you may be filled with the love of God. This morning, I might be talking to somebody who's never named the name of Jesus. Maybe even in what we've talked about this morning, you've been persuaded he is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you need to turn away from a life of sin and be baptized in water for the remission of your sins, just as people who were persuaded in the New Testament all the way through the book of Acts when they were persuaded, they were baptized for their mission of their sins. That's what you need to do if you haven't done that. We'd ask you to come while we stand and while we sing.